This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Violent households, they live in violent neighborhoods, they go to violent schools, they are traumatized by the time they're four and five, and we're not talking about it. So I want to talk tonight about solutions. These problems are everywhere, and we could identify other data, other demographics, other statistics that would outline problems, but I really wanted to talk to you tonight about some solutions. I believe we can change this nation. I really do. I believe we have to change this nation. I think we can create more justice in this country, but there are some things that all of us have to do if we really want to be about advancing justice, and I've got four. The first is, I don't think we can create more justice in America, in California, at Stanford, until we choose to get proximate to the problems that most motivate us, that most worry us. There is a need to get closer to the problems that we see. I believe that without getting proximate, you, do, you don't come up with the right solutions. We have too many policymakers trying to make solutions to problems from a distance. And when you problem solve from a distance, you get it wrong. You don't come up with the right solutions because you don't understand the details of the problems. When you get proximate, you hear things that you don't hear from a distance. You see things you don't hear, uh, you don't see from a distance. I'm persuaded that we've got to get closer to the parts of our community where there's poverty and inequality. We've got to get closer to people in jails and prisons. We've got to get closer to the people coming out of jails and prisons. If we want to do something about racial inequality, we have to go to the places where that racial inequality is most manifest. I believe in the power of proximity. I'm a witness of the power of proximity. I grew up in a community in the American South where black children couldn't go to the public schools. I started my education in a colored school. When I was a little boy, I had to go to a school that didn't go past the eighth grade. And my county, uh, my dad didn't, didn't have a high school. There were no high schools for black kids when my dad was a teenager. But when I was a little boy, lawyers came into our community. They, they got proximate. And they made them open up the public schools. And because of that, I got to go to high school. And then I got to go to college. It was because of these lawyers' choice to get proximate. I, I, lo I love coming to college campuses because I look out at you and I think about where I was, many of you who are students, when I was in your space. When I got to college, I went to a small college in Pennsylvania. It was a beautiful college on a lovely campus, and nobody in my family had ever graduated from college, so I didn't really know that much about college. Uh, but when I got to college, I couldn't believe how wonderful it was. Uh, I was, you know, I was playing sports, I was doing music. I was studying philosophy. I was a philosophy major. You know, you would go into the dining hall and they would just feed you. Uh, <laughs> and I just thought college was this magical place. I thought when I got to college after my second year, I said to myself one day, I said, you know what? I think I'm going to stay in college the rest of my life. <laughs> and when I became a senior one day, I would tell my friends every now and then, you know, I'm a philosophy major. So as a philosophy major, I'm going to go out here on the hillside and I'm going to think some deep thoughts. I would say that to my friends. I think they thought I was getting high or doing something illegal. I wasn't. But one day I was out there on this hillside thinking what I thought were these deep thoughts, and somebody came up to me and said, you know, you are a senior and you are a philosophy major. What are you going to do after you graduate? And I heard this as a very hostile question because <laughs> I realized for the first time that nobody was going to pay me to philosophize when I graduated from college. And so I started frantically trying to figure out how do you stay in school? And because nobody in my family had actually gone to college, I didn't know what I'm sure all of you already know. I didn't know 
that in this country, if you want to do graduate work in history or English or political science, you actually have to know something about history, English, or political science <laughs> to get into graduate school. I didn't realize that. And when I realized that, I was pretty intimidated by this. So I kept looking, kept looking, and to be honest, that's how I found law school. <laughs> it was really clear, it was very clear to me that you didn't need to know anything to go to law school. <laughs> so I signed up for that, and a few months later found myself at Harvard Law School, sitting in a classroom, and I was quickly disappointed. I went to law school because I wanted to, to do something about poverty and race and social justice, and it didn't seem like anybody was talking about poverty or race or justice. And it's only when I took a course that required me to go to Georgia and work with death row prisoners that I got proximate, that I saw things I didn't expect to see. I met people literally dying for legal assistance and proximity changed me. I've been working on children, working for children, prosecuted as adults. We have this phenomenon in America where we're actually sending children to adult jails and prisons. There are 250,000 kids serving long prison sentences in adult jails and prisons. There is no minimum age for trying children as adults in 15 states. That means we put 9 and 10 and 11-year-old children at risk of adult prosecution. I represent kids who've been sentenced to die in prison, life imprisonment without parole, some as young as 13 and 14. And the only way we can make sense of this is being so far away that we don't see the details. When I've gotten proximate, I've seen the details. I worked on a case some years ago involving a 14-year-old boy who was living in a household where his mother was repeatedly the target of a lot of domestic violence. This boy's mother had a boyfriend, and when this man would start drinking, he'd become violent. And one day he came home after he'd been drinking, and he called the boy's mother into the kitchen. He didn't say anything to her. He just walked up to her, and he punched her in the face. She fell down, and she hit her head as she fell, and she was on the floor unconscious, bleeding. Her son came running into the kitchen to try to help his mom recover. Uh, and he couldn't get her to wake up. He couldn't get her to move. And after 10 minutes, this child thought his mom was dead. She wasn't dead, but he thought she was dead. The man had gone into a bedroom and fallen asleep. This little boy got up and he walked into the bedroom to call the police or to call an ambulance. But then he remembered that this man kept a handgun in his dresser drawer. And so instead of picking up the phone, he opened up that dresser drawer and he pulled out that gun. And he walked over to where the man was sleeping. And this little boy pointed the gun at the man's head. The man was stare, uh, snoring, and when the man stopped snoring, this little boy tragically pulled the trigger. He shot the man in the head. The man died almost instantly. This boy was very small for his age. He was about five feet tall. He weighed less than 100 pounds. He'd never been in trouble before. He had no prior juvenile adjudications. He was the kind of kid that might have been tried as a juvenile, but for the fact that the man that he shot and killed, his mother's boyfriend, well, that man was a deputy sheriff. And because he was a deputy sheriff, the prosecutor insisted that this child be tried as an adult. And they immediately certified him to stand trial as an adult, and they put him in the adult jail. His grandmother called me after he'd been there for three days and asked me to get involved. I went to the jail, and I uh, sat in there, and this little boy came in, and he sat down. And I started asking him questions, but no matter what I asked him, he wouldn't say a word. He just sat there. I finally put my pen down, and I said, look, I can't help if you don't talk to me. You've got to talk to me. The little boy wouldn't say anything. I got up, I walked around the table, I pulled my chair close to him, I said, come on, you've got to talk to me. I can't help you if you don't talk to me. You've got to talk to me. And he just kept staring at the wall. He would not say anything. Couldn't figure out what to do. And at some point, I decided to just lean on him. I don't even know why. But I leaned on this little boy, and when I leaned on him, he leaned back. 
And when he leaned back, I put my arm around him and I said, come on, you've got to talk to me. I can't help you if you don't talk to me. And that's when this child started to cry. And through his tears, he began talking to me, not about what happened with his mom, not about what happened with the man, but he started talking to me about what had happened at the jail. He told me on the first night, several men had hurt him. He told me on the next night, uh, several people had raped him. He told me on the night before I'd gotten there, so many people had hurt him, he could not remember how many there had been. I held this little boy while he cried hysterically for almost an hour. I finally got him calm and I said, look, I'm going to get you out of here. You stay right here. I'm going to get you out of here. And I never will forget that child grabbing my arm saying, please, please, please don't go. I said, no, it's okay. I'm going to be right back. You stay right here. And I left that jail. And the question I had in my mind was, who is responsible for this? And the answer is, we are. We are. We've created this distance from the poorest and most vulnerable children in our society. We've allowed them to kind of fester and fend and cope with unimaginable problems. We've gotten so far away, we don't see the trauma and the injury and the cruelty that we are subjecting them to by our distance Many of you have heard your whole life that if there's a bad neighborhood, you stay away from it. If there are bad schools, you don't go to them. If there are places where there's poverty and abuse and neglect, stay as far away as you possibly can. I'm here tonight to tell you that the opposite is what we need to do if we're about justice. We've got to get closer to those places where there's poverty and abuse and neglect. We've got to go inside those bad schools. We've got to get inside jails and prisons. We've got to get closer to the people who are coming out of these institutions. We've got to hold those children who are vulnerable and neglected and marginalized closer. And I'm here to tell you that there's power in proximity, that sometimes you don't think you have the tools and skills necessary to change these things, but I'm here to tell you that just sometimes getting proximate can make the difference. The second thing I believe we have to do if we really want to create more justice is that we have to change the narratives that sustain inequality and injustice. You see, mass incarceration was not created just by policies. Yes, there were policies. We decided to deal with drug addiction and drug dependency as a crime problem rather than a health problem. We could have said drug addiction and drug dependency is like alcoholism. It's a health issue. Uh, nobody would suggest that it's appropriate to put someone who's an alcoholic in prison if we see them drinking. We see that as a health issue. But with drug dependency and drug addiction, we said that's a crime problem. And we made that choice. We decided uh, to kind of beat up on people who were poor. But those policies were sustained by a narrative. And the narrative is what I call the politics of fear and anger. For 40 years, our politicians have been preaching to us that we should be afraid and we should be angry and we should tolerate abuse and cruelty because it feels tough. And the truth is, is that when you're afraid and when you're angry, you will tolerate inequality and injustice. And our politicians have exploited that both parties, doesn't matter who. And we got to change the narrative. We kept to resist the narrative of fear and anger. You're hearing some of it now. People preaching that this bad thing and that group of people and these people over here and that narrative will lead to injustice. And good people have to do things in response to that if we're going to create more justice. I think we actually have to change the narrative about race. I do. We've never really confronted the history of racial inequality in this country. And as a result of that, all of us are infected by this disease. We are all carrying this illness, this disruption that has been created by a narrative of racial difference. Our parents and our grandparents didn't talk about things that we needed to talk about. And because of that, we continue to suffer. 
And so I believe we actually have to have conversations that we haven't had. I think we need to talk about slavery in America. You see, I think the legacy of slavery continues to haunt us. We are shadowed by this era that did destructive things. The great evil of American slavery for me was not involuntary servitude or forced labor. I don't believe that. I think the great evil of American slavery was the narrative of racial difference that we created to legitimate it. It's the ideology of white supremacy that we made up to make ourselves feel like enslaving these black people was okay. You see, slavery wasn't in America wasn't like slavery in other parts of the world. In Africa, there were slaves. In Asia, there were slaves. There were part slavery everywhere. But in America, in those countries, they were societies with slaves. In America, we became a slave society. We created an ideology to make ourselves comfortable with slavery. And that ideology was an ideology of white supremacy. It was an ideology that was racialized. We said these black people are different. They've got deficits. They're not even fully human. And because of that, we can enslave them and feel moral and just and Christian. And that narrative was the great evil of American slavery. And the 13th Amendment doesn't deal with that narrative. The Emancipation Proclamation doesn't talk about the ideology uh, of white supremacy. And because of that, I don't believe slavery ended in 1865. I think it just evolved. It turned into decades of terrorism and lynching and racial hierarchy. Between the end of Reconstruction and World War II, we did horrific things to people of color in this country. We lynched them. We terrorized them. It was terrorism. Whole groups of people would come, thousands of people would come and watch someone be burned to death, watch someone be castrated, watch someone be mutilated, and no one did anything. And this era of terrorism was horrific. You've got black people in the Bay Area. Some of you might be from this region, and, and many people don't even appreciate how it's lynching and terror that shaped the demographic geography of this nation. The African Americans in, 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 in Oakland in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, in Cleveland, in Chicago, in Detroit, in New York, in Boston, did not go to those communities as immigrants looking for new economic opportunities. They came to these communities as refugees and exiles from terrorism in the American South. At the beginning of the 20th century, 90-some percent of the black population lived in the Deep South, and they fled by the millions because they were being threatened and menaced and traumatized. And we didn't talk about it. We didn't deal with it. We've created this exodus, and we haven't understood how that exodus shapes the way these communities continue to struggle. Even in the civil rights context, I think we have to change the narrative, I'll be honest. I hear people talking about the civil rights movement, and I'll, I'm going to get in trouble here, but I'm going to be honest, but I get worried. I hear people talking about the civil rights movement, and it's so celebratory, and everybody gets to celebrate the civil rights movement. We don't ask any qualifying questions. We don't ask any hard anything. You just get to celebrate. I hear people talking about the civil rights movement, and it sounds like a three-day carnival. <laughs> on day one, Rosa Parks didn't give up her seat on a bus. On day two, Dr. King led a march on Washington. And on day three, we just changed all the laws. <laughs> and I mean, if that was our history, we'd be a great country, but that's not our history. Our history is that for decades in this country, we humiliated black people on a daily basis. For decades in this country, we told black people, you're not good enough to vote. We told black people, you're not good enough to go to school with the rest of us. We humiliated people regularly. My parents were humiliated every day of their lives. Every time they saw those signs, white and colored, it wasn't just a sign, it was an assault. And we haven't talked about what that's done. We haven't talked about those injuries. We should have committed ourselves to truth and reconciliation at the end of the civil rights movement, but we didn't do that. 
And now we're in this era of mass incarceration and that narrative of racial difference is behind this police violence that we see. It is behind our indifference to these statistics about racial bias in the criminal justice system. It has created a presumption of dangerousness and guilt that follows black and brown people. And I can tell you, even at Stanford, with your Stanford degrees, you cannot educate yourself to the point you are free from this presumption. It will follow you. You can't make enough money. You can't educate yourself enough. I was in a courtroom not too long ago, just a couple of years ago. I feel like I've done something maybe, and I was in the courtroom. First time I was in this court in the Midwest, and I was sitting at defense counsel's table, and the judge walked in. I had my suit on. I had my shirt on. I had my tie on. The judge walked in. He said, hey, 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 hey. You get back out there in the hallway, and you wait until your lawyer gets here. I don't want any defendant sitting in my courtroom without their lawyer. And I stood up, and I said, oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor. I didn't introduce myself. I am the lawyer. And the judge started laughing. And the prosecutor started laughing, and I made myself laugh because I didn't want to disadvantage my client. Client came in, a young white kid I was representing. We did the hearing. <laughs> and afterward, I was thinking to myself, what is it that when this judge saw a middle-aged black man in a suit and tie at defense counsel's table, it didn't even occur to him that that's the lawyer. What that is is this narrative of racial difference. We've got to change it. We've got to have these conversations. We've got to confront it. In South Africa, there was a recognition that they could not recover from apartheid without truth and reconciliation. In Rwanda, there's a recognition that there will not be peace after genocide without truth and reconciliation. Go to Germany. In the nation state of Germany today, uh, there is this commitment to talking about the Holocaust. You can't go 100 meters in Berlin without seeing a marker or a stone that's been placed at the home of a Jewish family that was abducted during the Holocaust. The Germans want you to go to Auschwitz and reflect soberly on the history of the Holocaust. In this country, we do the opposite. We don't talk about slavery. We don't talk about lynching. We don't talk about segregation. We don't talk about racial bias. In fact, when you start talking about race, people start looking for exits. You start talking about racial justice, people are so nervous they don't know which way to turn. We haven't even developed the habits of having this conversation, and we've got to change that. Uh, we've got a project at EJI. We want to put markers at every lynching site in this country. We want to resurrect this narrative in ways that we begin to understand what it means to be burdened by our history. It's not just for people of color, it's for everybody. A generation of white people have been taught that they're better than other people because of their skin color. It's a kind of child abuse. And we've got to help people get free from that. There is something better than what we have experienced in this nation when it comes to racial justice. I really do believe it. There is a better place. There is a better way for us to intersect with one another than what we have experienced. But we will not get there unless we change the narrative. Third thing, it's not enough to get proximate and change narratives. We cannot create the justice that we want unless we protect our hope. And I'm really, really convinced of this one. I am persuaded that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. Injustice prevails where hopelessness persists. And when you find yourself beginning to think that you cannot make a difference, when you begin to accept that these are problems too big for us to confront, to change, to challenge, you are going to contribute to the problem of injustice. Your hope is essential. You've got to protect your hopefulness. You do. Because without that, you will not be able to do the necessary things that hopefulness requires, that justice requires. Hope is what gets you to stand up when other people say, sit down. Hope is what gets you to speak when other people say, be quiet. You've got to protect your hope. You know, I had the great privilege when I was a young uh, lawyer of meeting Rosa Parks. I got to spend a lot of time with her. And when I moved to Montgomery, there was a woman named Johnny Carr who was the architect of the Montgomery bus boycott. 
She would say Dr. King got all the attention, but she was the real person who made it work. And Ms. Carr called me up. She said, now, Brian, do you, I understand you're a young lawyer, just moved to Montgomery. I said, yes, I am. She said, well, do you know who I am? I'm Johnny Carr. I'm the architect of the Montgomery bus boycott. I said, well, I know all about you, Ms. Carr. I'm so honored to be speaking with you. She said, well, that's nice. Uh, I understand that uh, you're a lawyer. And so what I'm going to do every now and then, I'm going to call you up and I'm going to ask you to go someplace and speak. And then she said, sometimes I'm going to call you up and ask you to go someplace and listen. And then she said, when I call you up and ask you to do something, you're going to say, yes, ma'am. <laughs> so I said, yes, ma'am. And sure enough, she would call me up and send me someplace to talk or send me someplace to listen. And one day she called me up. She said, Brian, Rosa Parks is coming to town. We're going to get together and go over to Virginia Durr's house. Virginia Durr was this white woman who, uh, whose husband, Clifford Durr, represented Dr. King. She said, we're just going to get together and talk. She said, do you want to come over and listen? I said, oh, yes, ma'am, I do. Every now and then she'd say, now, Brian, what does the word listen mean? And I'd explain to her, I knew I wasn't supposed to say anything. And sure enough, I went over and I listened to these women. And the amazing thing was Ms. Parks and Ms. Carr and Ms. Durr, they weren't talking about what they had done. They were still talking about what they were going to do in their 70s and their 80s. There was a hopefulness that defined and shaped their relationship to the world. And I just sat there and took it all in. And after a couple of hours, Ms. Parks turned to me. and She said, now, Brian, tell me about the Equal Justice Initiative. Tell me what you're trying to do. And I looked at Ms. Carr to see if I had permission to speak, and she nodded. Uh, and so I gave her my rap. I said, well, we're trying to do something about the death penalty. We're trying to do something about uh, kids being prosecuted as adults. We're trying to do something about prison overcrowding. We're trying to do something about the mentally ill. We're trying to do something about children. We're trying to do something about racial bias. We're trying to do something about poverty. We're trying to do something about segregation. We're trying to do something about these conditions of confinement. I gave her my whole rap, and when I finished, she looked at me. She said, mm, mm, mm. She said, that's going to make you tired, tired, tired. And that's when Ms. Carr leaned forward and she put her finger in my face and she said, that's why you've got to be brave, brave, brave. It takes courage to be hopeful when we are confronting the kind of inequality that we sometimes have to confront. When you get in those proximate spaces, those places of difficulty, you need to take your courage to stay hopeful. But hope is essential. Fourth thing, final thing, and I wish I could stop at three. But I can't. The fourth thing that I have to tell you is that we cannot create justice. We cannot change the world by just getting proximate, by just changing narratives, by just staying hopeful. The fourth thing we've got to do is that we've got to be willing to do uncomfortable things. I've read and I've studied. I've never found oppression in. I've never found justice triumph. I've never found a situation where equality prevailed when people only did what's comfortable and convenient. If you're going to change the world, you're gonna to have to do some things that are uncomfortable. And that's hard because human beings are programmed to do what's, what's comfortable. We like comfort. I like comfort. I'm not preaching against comfort. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but sometimes you have to choose to do uncomfortable things. And I gave a talk in Mississippi a little while ago. I flew down to Jackson and I actually was in Hattie, Gulfport, Mississippi. And the people met me at the airport and they said, oh, Mr. Stevenson, we know all about you. We've read about you. We know what kind of person you are. We know what kind of work you do. And, we've, uh, and we're having our conference at the luxurious Doubletree Hotel. And we decided that you wouldn't want to stay at the luxurious Doubletree Hotel. So we've asked one of the farmers to put you up at the barn. I said, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I said, of course I want to stay at the luxurious Doubletree Hotel. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that sometimes... You've got to position yourself in uncomfortable places and you've got to be a witness. And I'm going to tell you something just a little bit personal, if you don't mind. I've been representing people on death row for 30 years, 30 years. 
And we've had some great moments. Uh, just this past April, I walked out of a prison with a man who'd spent 30 years on death row for a crime he did not commit. Anthony Ray Hinton, wrongly condemned, wrongly convicted, lost a lot of sleep over that case. But just a few months ago, we walked that man out of jail or prison. Yesterday, I spent a couple of hours with him. Every time I spend time with him, it's just like this shot of adrenaline. And it's so affirming. But I'm also going to tell you that not every case has ended up like that. Between 2009 and 2011, Alabama had the highest execution rate in the country. We don't have a public defender system. There is no right to counsel for death row prisoners in this country. Uh, we do not meet the needs of the poor, even when they face uh, the death penalty. One of the great challenges of our criminal justice system is that we have a system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes. Well, all of these execution dates were being set, and I, we made the commitment to stand with all the people facing execution, and my young lawyer started working on these cases. And one of the challenges of our legal system right now is that our courts have a priority over on finality over fairness. We care more about getting to the end than getting it right. And in each of these cases, the court kept saying, too late, and these people were being executed, and I watched my staff get beat down. And I finally said, you know what, you all take a break. I, I've been doing this longer. I know what I'm doing. Let me take the next case. I just was worried about them. And I got involved in a case where a man had been uh, convicted and sentenced to death who was intellectually disabled. He suffered from mental retardation. And the courts had banned execution of people with intellectual disability. You're not supposed to execute someone like that. But the lawyers never raised the issue at trial. They didn't raise it at the right time. And because of that, this man was moving toward execution. I got involved and said, look, this man is intellectually disabled. You can't execute him. The court said too late. The trial court said too late. The appeals court said too late. The state court said too late. The federal court said too late. And on the day of the execution, I was waiting for a ruling from the United States Supreme Court. And about an hour before the execution, the court called and the clerk told me that the court had denied our stay motion. Too late. I hung up the phone and I picked up the phone to call my client down on death row. And I got on the phone with this man and I told him the dreadful news. He was obviously overwhelmed. And in addition to being intellectually disabled, this man had another challenge. Uh, when he got nervous, when he got worried, when he got overwhelmed, he also had a very severe speech impediment. And he told me that he had something really important that he had to tell me, but then he couldn't get his words out. He started to talk. He started to say something, but he couldn't get the words out. He just started stuttering. He started trying to get words out that he couldn't make form in his mouth. And he was trying and trying and trying. It seemed like the harder he tried, the more difficult it became. And the closer we got to the execution time, the harder it was for him to speak. And the guards were trying to rush him, which just made it harder. And this man was trying to say something, and he begged me not to hang up. But I was struggling. Because the more he tried to talk, the more he tried to get his words out, and he couldn't, the more he was just ripping my heart apart. And I was standing there holding the phone, and tears started running down my face. And I listened to this man try so valiantly to say something, but not be able to, and I was just overwhelmed. I remembered how when I was a little boy, my mother took me to church one Sunday, and I was there with my brother, and we were talking to our friends, and there was a little boy, a skinny kid I'd never seen before, who was standing next to one of my friends, and I remembered asking this child, you know, what his name was or where he was from. And I remembered how when I asked that little boy that question, this little boy couldn't get his words out either. He also had a very uh, se severe speech impediment. And I remembered how uh, when I asked him that and he couldn't get his words out, I did something really ignorant. I laughed. And then I remembered how my mother saw me laughing and came over and grabbed me by the arm and gave me this look I'd never seen before. And she pulled me aside and she said, Brian, don't you ever laugh at somebody because they can't get their words out right. Don't you ever do that. 
And I tried to defend myself. I said, Mom, I didn't know. She said, no, you know better than that. And then my mother looked at me and she said, you go back over there and tell that little boy you're sorry. I said, okay, Mom. And I took a step and she grabbed me by the arm. She said, wait, after you tell that little boy you're sorry, I want you to, tell, I want you to hug that little boy. I kind of rolled my eyes. I said, okay, Mom. And I took a step and she said, grab me by the arm. She said, wait, after you hug that little boy, I want you to tell that little boy you love him. I said, Mom, I can't go over there and tell that little boy. And she gave me that look again. So I said, okay, okay. And on the night of this execution, I remembered going over to this little boy and walking up to him and saying, uh, look, man, you know, uh, um, I'm sorry. And then I sort of lunged at him and gave him my little boy version of a man hug. And what I remembered was saying to this child as insincerely as I possibly could, I said, uh, you know, um, uh, well, um, I love you. And what I'd forgotten until that night was how that little boy hugged me back and he whispered flawlessly in my ear. He said, I love you too. And then the man was able to get his words out before they executed him. And he said to me, Mr. Stevenson, I want to thank you for representing me. And then he said, I want to thank you for fighting for me. And the last thing this man said to me was, Mr. Stevenson, I love you for trying to save my life. He hung up the phone. They pulled him away, they strapped him to a gurney, and they executed him. I hung up the phone and I said, I can't do this anymore, it's too hard. It's just too hard. The question I had in my mind, the thought I had in my mind was how broken he was. And I kept asking myself, why do we want to kill all the broken people in this country? What is it about us that when we see brokenness, we want to step on it, we want to throw it away, we want to crush it. And then I said, I can't deal with this anymore, it's too hard. Too hard, too hard, too hard, I'm going to stop. And then I started thinking about why I'd been doing what I do. And I realized that all of my clients are broken people. I represent the broken. People broken by poverty, broken by racism, broken by neglect, broken by abuse. I work in a broken system. We've got too many people who are too far away, who are not proximate, and have power, and they're making judgments that are unjust. I said, I don't want to have anything more to do with this. And that's when that kind of conversation you have to have when you're going to do something big kicked in. And I thought, you better think about why you've been doing what you're doing. And I realized something I'd never realized before. All of a sudden, I realized why I do what I do. And what I realized is that I don't do, I, I, I don't do what I do because I think it's important. I don't do what I do because it's about human rights. I don't do what I do because I've been trained to do it. I don't do what I do because I have a law degree. I don't do what I do because if I don't do it, no one else will. I don't do what I do because I get to talk to wonderful people like you. I realized that night that I do what I do because I'm broken too. And the truth is, is that when you get proximate, when you have to change narratives, when you have to stay hopeful in the face of inequality, when you do uncomfortable things, it will break you. You'll get little cuts and nicks, but I'm here to tell you there's a power in the broken. This country will not be saved by the elites, the privileged, those who are whole and happy. This country will be saved when broken people reach out and find and claim their humanity. It's the broken who understand the power of mercy. It is the broken who understand the need for compassion. It is the broken who can lead us to the places where justice must prevail. I believe really simple things. I believe that each person is more than the worst thing that they've ever done. I think if somebody tells a lie, they're not just a liar. I think if somebody takes something that doesn't belong to them, they're not just a thief. I think even if you kill somebody, you're not just a killer. And a system of justice that doesn't care about the other things you are is going to be fundamentally unjust. I tell you also, I don't believe that the opposite of poverty is wealth. I think we talk too much about money in America. 
I am persuaded that in this country, the opposite of poverty is not wealth. I believe the opposite of poverty is justice. And we've got to commit to more justice. And finally, I believe that when I come to the Bay Area, when I come to California, I can't judge how you're doing out here about how you treat the rich and the powerful and the privileged. There's a lot of incredible things going on. There are elites, there's Silicon Valley, there's these wonderful things, but I can't judge your character. I can't judge your commitment to justice by how you treat the rich and the powerful. I have to judge your character, your commitment to justice, not by how you treat the privileged, but by how you treat the poor, the incarcerated, and the condemned. That's the nexus that teaches me, tells me where we are. I'm going to end with this. It's difficult to do some of the things that we have to do to confront these big problems. We're going to talk about some of them. But I want you to know that there is precedent for doing them. I was giving a talk not too long ago, and uh, an older man came into the church where I was talking. He was an older black man. He was in a wheelchair, and he had this very stern, almost angry look on his face the whole time I was talking. He was actually unnerving me because he was staring at me so hard, I couldn't figure out what the problem was. I finished my talk. People came up. They were very nice and appropriate, but that man kept staring at me in the back. When everybody else left, he got a young kid to wheel him up to me at the front of the church, and he came down the center aisle of this church with this stern look on his face. And when he got in front of me, he put his hand up and he said, do you know what you're doing? And I was stunned. I just stood there. And then he asked me again. He said, do you know what you're doing? And I stepped back and I mumbled something. I don't even remember what I said. And then he asked me one last time. He said, do you know what you're doing? And then this man looked at me. He said, I'm going to tell you what you're doing. And he looked at me and he said, you're beating the drum for justice. You keep beating the drum for justice. And I was so moved. I was also really relieved because I just didn't know. <laughs> then he grabbed me by my jacket and he pulled me into his wheelchair. He said, come here, come here, come here. I'm going to show you something. And then this man looked at me and he turned his head. He said, you see this scar I have behind my right ear? He said, I got that scar in Greene County, Alabama, 1963, trying to register people to vote. He turned his head. He said, you see this cut I have down here, the bottom of my neck? He said, I got that cut in Philadelphia, uh, Mississippi in 1964, trying to register people to vote. He turned his head. He said, you see this dark spot? He said, that's my bruise. I got my bruise in Birmingham, 1965, trying to register people to vote. He said, I'm going to tell you something, young man. He said, people look at me. They think I'm some old man sitting in a wheelchair covered with cuts and bruises and scars. He said, but I'm going to tell you something. He said, these aren't my cuts. These aren't my bruises. These aren't my scars. He said, these are my medals of honor. What we are going to have to do to change this nation, what we're going to have to do to advance justice is get proximate to change narratives, to be hopeful, to do some uncomfortable things and not worry about the cuts and the nicks. Sometimes they are the things that liberate us. They are the things that honor us. You honor me by giving me this opportunity to be here with you tonight. And I want to thank you for all the work that I hope will continue in this place, uh, in your hearts, in your minds, in your lives, as we try to advance justice. Thank you very, very much.
talk about a hard act to follow. <laughs> it's like Brian Stevenson for president, please. <laughs> thank you. That was just incredibly moving, Brian. So thank you so much for being here. And now we're gonna we're gonna do a panel discussion which I'm sure is probably a little disappointing to some of you all at this point, because we could probably listen to Brian talk for hours. But we actually have a wonderful panel to discuss some of the issues he raised. And I'm having trouble with my Madonna microphones. I'm so sorry about that. Not used to this kind of mic. Let me introduce our panelists for you, though, tonight. Stanford psychology professor Jennifer Eberhardt is a 2014 MacArthur Fellow and a social psychologist. Yeah. <laughs> and a social psychologist who studies the consequences of the psychological association between race and crime. Her groundbreaking work has uncovered the extent to which racial imagery and judgment permeate both our culture and our society. Stanford American politics professor Gary Segura is a director, is director, the director <laughs> of the Institute on the Politics of Inequality, Race, and Ethnicity. He focuses on issues of political representation and the politics of America's growing Latino minority. He has studied minority politics and political behavior in the multiracial era of American politics and was one of three lead investigators of the 2012 American National Election Studies. And finally, Stanford Law Professor Robert Weisberg is faculty co-director of the Stanford Criminal Justice Center, which promotes and coordinates research and public policy programs on criminal law and the criminal justice system. His primary focus is in the field of criminal law, procedure, and sentencing, including examination of the police and correctional system. So please welcome our panelists. I think I'm just I think I'm just going to do this. Can you all hear me if I just hold it like this? So, so Brian, I just want to pick up uh gosh, how do I pick up where you left <laughs> off seriously? Um but you know, one of the things that is a positive note that I think does keep us all hopeful is that criminal justice reform is one thing that Democrats and Republicans seem to agree on when it comes to legislative initiatives. Can you tell us about the recent, the, the sort of the latest uh, legislation. I know it's expected to arrive on President Obama's desk this summer and how it will change the atrocious numbers that you described in your talk. Well, I do think it's encouraging that we've come to a point which we haven't seen in four decades where you have people from both political parties acknowledging that we have too many people in jails and prisons. And that creates an opportunity to do something. And my hope is that we do something big and bold. Uh, you know, we have an objective. We think that we should cut the prison population in this country by half over the next eight years. And I think we can do that. We've got a million people in jails and prisons uh, that are there for low-level drug crimes or nonviolent crimes. Uh, there are that many people who we could release without in any way compromising public safety. The problem is, is the kind of the jurisdictions that have control over this. So what Congress is talking about, what the president was talking about last night, is what the federal government can do uh, to impact mass incarceration. Uh, and there are kind of a bunch of proposals out there. Uh, some deal specifically with the least uh, kind of uh, politically complicated crimes, very low-level drug offenders, very low-level nonviolent offenders. Others try to do more. They try to deal with both that problem of over-incarceration and collateral consequences. 
the problem is going to be that only 10% of the 2.3 million people in jails and prisons are in the federal system. And so the Congress can't solve this problem. I think it'll be an important step to move forward. I think people should pay close attention to these bills. I think you should be uh, informed about them. The Sentencing Reform Act, the, 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 sentence, the sentence Reform Act, is an act that does more than just reduce sentences. It actually does things like deal with the collateral consequences. If you release a million people or 100,000 people from jails and prisons and you don't provide reentry services for them, you don't allow them to get jobs, you don't allow them to do the things that you need to do, they're going to end up back in jails and prisons. So we want the bills that actually do the most to help people recover from what we've done to them. And I think those are the bills we hope that the president will sign. But what we really hope is that that will then start a conversation in the states, which is where most of the people who are in jails and prisons are. In fact, 85% of inmates are housed in state-controlled prisons. Yeah. So, so Bob, you know, how do you deal with that kind of incarceration at that level? And what are some of the forces at work that will try to be, work against any kind of reform, particularly at the state level? Well, we start with the forces that created the problem in the first place. And as Brian points out, uh, there is some hope now for a bipartisan solution, which is just as well because the fault is bipartisan as well. Uh, uh, basically, what happened in the United States going back about 40-plus years is a strange consensus behind a change in the criminal justice system whereby an old discretionary system where, for example, judges had a fair amount of discretion as to how much of a sentence to hand down was seen as very bad, which it was in many ways, because it invited lots of disparity and no question lots of discrimination. But the solution turned out to be rather odd, which was to make things much more fixed, much more mandatory, and frankly, to ratchet up rather than ratchet down. So what we've had is a combination of very draconian legislation, especially mandatory minimum drug laws. We've also had legislation which admittedly targets people who are not nonviolent, but with bizarre disproportion, so we get so many de facto life sentences. Uh, and uh, a certain political inertia developed such that it was seen as almost an act of communist subversion to ever talk about actually reducing sentences. Uh, at the same time, we had these strange trajectories in crime rates in the United States, where the crime rate shot up dramatically from the 1970s to about 1990, to the highest in American history. The incarceration rate increased with it. Then we had this incredible drop in the crime rate, which has continued to some extent, but certainly crime dropped precipitously in the 1990s and the early noughts. But the incarceration rate kept going up. And yes, of course, the argument was made was, well, one explains the other. Incarceration goes up, crime goes down. Well, statistics don't, you know, don't, you know, validate that at all. What we have seen in recent years is a kind of bipartisan guilty conscience in some of the states. And interestingly, it has had to be bipartisan because of the old phenomenon. You know, those of you old enough to remember the line, Nixon can go to China. Well, it's sometimes the Republicans who can afford to risk being looking soft on crime. And there's been a lot of revision, for example, in the mandatory minimum drug laws. And I'd put the recognition this way. The political forces that always complain about big government, big taxation, big programs, have always seemed to make a strange exception for criminal justice, which is, after all, a large, invasive, tax-dependent tax government program and one that's bloated and inefficient. 
We've seen some movement in the states, but it's going to have to be very local, very political, very granular. And there are a lot of people working against it, part of sort of the prison industrial complex, if you will. People have a vested interest in high incarceration rates. Certainly that's true, and the famous or infamous prison guards union in California has certainly played a role in this. But I think things are changing in part because a lot of people at the state level, including judges and prosecutors, have begun to realize that Criminal justice is, after all, a government program that's supposed to accomplish something. It's not necessarily a theological imperative to impose maximum retribution. Jennifer, let's talk about policing and the systemic racism that seems so pervasive in police departments across the country. For example, racial disparities like the fact that African Americans are stopped twice as often as whites for exceedingly minor violations like driving too slow, malfunctioning lights, failure to signal. These are so-called investigatory stops, and they have in some cases led to the killing of unarmed civilians like Samuel DuBose, who was shot in Cincinnati at a traffic stop because he was missing his front license plate that happened to be in his car. Tell us about your work with implicit bias and how it may be affecting the judgment of police officers interacting with black and Latino suspects. Right, so um, bias can direct suspicion Right, so there's a, a, an association there between blackness and crime. And um, in fact, um, blackness can uh, direct our, our vision. It can direct sort of where I, our, our um, eyes will fall. So in um, some studies that I've conducted with police officers, um, we um, expose them to, um, you know, sort of the, the concept or sort of make uh, accessible the concept of violent crime. Um, so we do that by exposing them uh, quickly to words like arrest and capture, shoot, and so forth. And we show them an image of a black face and a white face, and we watch their eyes move away from the white face and uh, land on the black face. And when you take that black face away from, from the computer screen and you ask them to recall the, the black face they saw, they recall a face that's more stereotypically black um, than the face they were shown. So that association is a deep one. It's affecting not only um, you know, our, our behavior and the decisions we're making, but it affects uh, how we see, how we literally, um, where we decide to place our eyes. It affects um, you know, how we are able um, you know, to pick up on um, objects in the world. I've, I've done other studies with, with students, for example, where we um, show them um, black faces or white faces and we show them blurry images of objects. And it turns out if they're exposed to the black faces uh, beforehand, um, they're able to uh, pick up what those blurry images uh, are if they're guns more quickly. Um, so that, that association is... Um, is um, you know, a powerful one, I think, and affects not just the police, but it affects students, it affects community members, it affects voters, uh, it affects all of us. Gary, what about uh, policies like racial profiling and stop and frisk? I know when the NYPD was using stop and frisk, they were targeting blacks and Latinos 85% of the time. Um, and, and according to a study from the NAACP in 2014, 20 states still don't have laws banning the use of racial profiling. Has it gotten any better? Has this changed at all? Um, on the one hand, stop and frisk, as we understood it in New York City, has been modified and, and, and 
significantly reduced, but how bad the problem was really needs to be illustrated. I don't know if he's in the audience, but one of my doctoral students, Jonathan Mumolo, is doing a study of the stop and frisk policy in New York, and I believe it was in fiscal year 2010. Among African-American males 18 to 39, there were more stops in New York than the census said there were people. Um, that is that on average, each African-American male between 18 and 39 was stopped more than once by the NYPD. Now, that's insane. And, and, and <laughs> rather than just simply say that there's these problems of racial profiling, why aren't states working to eliminate it? In fact, states are actually in some instances passing laws that encourage it. And uh, I do most of my work on immigration. As some of you may have heard, Arizona passed a law in 2010 called SB 1070, and that empowered the police to stop anyone uh, who they reasonably suspected might be undocumented. Well, the little Canadian kid in the corner is not the one who's going to be reasonably suspected of being undocumented in Arizona. So we actually facilitate racial profiling in some of the legal things, uh, some of the uh, policies that we adopt. And, and Brian, tell us, reflect for us how the impact that these policing policies have on the African-American community, minority communities, Latino communities. Well, it's demoralizing. I mean, I think uh, you are being threatened and menaced every day of your life. The people who are supposed to keep you safe are actually as much of a threat to you as the people who you think are dangerous. And it ultimately undermines trust and legitimacy. I mean, let's face it, the, the, the people who enforced the Fugitive Slave Act during the time of slavery, you know, we hear about Harriet Tubman taking people through the Underground Railroad and the courageous people trying to, well, the people who were trying to disrupt that were law enforcement people. They were the people who went into the North and actually made arrests and put, pulled people back. During the time of, of, of lynching, uh, the people who failed to protect the black community while they were being killed and slaughtered through these acts of racial terror was law enforcement. It'd be the sheriff that, that picked you up, and then that same sheriff would open up the jail door so the mob could pull you out and kill you. It'd be the sheriff and the police that left your body hanging from a tree, the sheriff that would insist that no one did anything wrong. During the time of segregation, when civil rights people would march and protest, who would be on the other side trying to stop them? It would be uniformed police officers. And throughout our history, people wearing the uniform have been forces and tools of resistance to racial equality. They have been the tools of racial oppression. And we act as if somehow that history doesn't matter when we join the police department, when we see the police department. And if we don't do something absolutely corrective, that will continue to be the case, which is why when a young man is shot or killed, a young person of color is shot and killed, it's the police who ought to be saying, no, let's get somebody from the outside to investigate. I want to stop policing. I want to do everything I can to make it clear that this is not my commitment. One of the pro programs that we have is that we're putting up these markers at lynching sites all across the country. And the first thing we do is we want to go to sheriffs and police chiefs, and we say to the sheriff, the police chiefs, we say, when we put up our marker, we want you to be there. And I think you should say to the black community that you are sorry that people wearing this uniform did not protect people of color when these acts of terror and violence took place. And then we think you should say, I want to commit to you that now the people wearing this uniform are here to protect you, here to serve you. And you know what happens when we ask them to do that? They say, oh, we can't do that. That's too uncomfortable for us, right? And that's why this narrative change has to take place, because without that, we're giving away opportunities to build the trust and legitimacy that is necessary if we're actually going to both keep communities safe, keep police officers safe, 
and actually build the kind of society where we can do something collectively to help us all be safe. Jennifer, I know that you're using your research to help work with various police departments. Tell us about that. Are, are they taking, are they, are they, how do they react to your research? And are they taking positive steps to change the way they interact with, with people of color? Right. So um, I started working with uh, uh, law enforcement agencies some time ago. And um, I remember uh, still when I, I first got a call um, uh, actually to go up to uh, Sacramento and present um, to um, law enforcement officials at a conference on racial profiling. And um, I was really uh, nervous, actually, about going and about talking about my work. And I didn't know how they would receive it. Um, and you know, just the idea of, of talking about uh, racial bias in a way that they could be implicated. I didn't know if they would reject that or get defensive around it, but they didn't. Um, and, um, and that surprised me. They were, um, ex like, sort of, you know, quite open uh, to uh, hearing uh, this information um, in a way that they hadn't heard before. I think uh, normally uh, all of the conversations, you know, at that point uh, for them had, had been about, they were accusatory. I mean, there, there were um, conversations that the, where the only way you could deal with uh, race was to, um, under the threat of litigation or to be monitored in a way. So there was, even though they could recognize that they had a real issue, there was no way to um, safely um, examine the problem. And so, um, you know, sort of talking about um, uh, this work, talking about um, implicit bias in the way in which uh, we all can be affected by it, I think um, it um, allowed them to um, have this conversation that they just weren't having. And so I was uh, uh, really um, gratified by that. Um, so that was surprising. And then I've been surprised in other ways too, like, uh, <laughs> Uh, more recently, uh, I've been working with an agency and, um, you know, I was going to go in and sort of talk to them about uh, doing this experimental study um, there um, and kind of control for this and that and the other thing. And I, I sat um, across uh, the table from, you know, well, they all have guns. I was going to say a guy with a gun. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, he and he looked at me and he says, you know, you know, I'm not going to let this happen on my watch. And I was like, what is he talking about? He says, he says, I'm completely against random assignment. And um, random assignment is like, <laughs> I was like, who could be against random assignment? I mean, there's a social scientist. I mean, for a randomized control study, that's, that's the gold standard. That's what you want. You would think people would embrace that because they really want to know, um, you know, sort of what's, um, what's happening. They really want to understand cause and effect. They really want to get to the root of the problem and be able to figure out um, what the solution is. And, and one way you can do that to really examine a problem carefully is to um, randomly, you know, assign people to conditions in these studies. But he was like, that's not going to happen on my watch. You could forget about it. So uh, anyway, so that that that's interesting. But um, <laughs> um, I feel like uh, just you know what uh, Brian was saying earlier about being proximate. Um, that uh, that just walking into uh, these law enforcement agencies and sort of tr trying to understand, um, you know, their world and understand their culture and understand sort of what, what you know, what the policies are that, um, you know, could, you know, sometimes uh, uh, lead um, sort of um, 
it sort of um, n not prevent uh, bias, but allow bias to uh, fester. Um, you have to like be in there to know that. You have to be, um, you know, you can't do that from a laboratory. You can't do that from an academic institution. You actually have to go there and drive there and um, actually talk uh, to them about what they're doing. And um, that proximity has, um, you know, helped me um, tremendously, even though um, sometimes it's uncomfortable. It's, you know, it's uh, sometimes outside my comfort zone. Um, it has um, allowed me actually to have a lot of hope about um, the possibility for uh, change, um, change in law enforcement in particular in this country. Well, that's good to hear. Meanwhile, but, you know, I know that, that uh, Bob, a lot of people say the police departments themselves need to be more diverse, um, but others argue that the thin blue line or whatever, that, that, his, that Latino and African-American police officers are loyal first to the police unless they get into these sort of upper management positions. What are your feelings on, on the effectiveness of more diversity? I guess it must help to a certain extent, correct? Oh, it absolutely helps, and it's tough to do controlled experiments on this, uh, as <laughs> Professor Everhart, you know, would affirm. But there's plenty of evidence that things change in the culture of police departments when there is diversity. But even if the concern right now is that the changes are only at the top level, those are pretty significant changes. There are very, very progressive cops in the United States. They're some of the most thoughtful leaders in the country. And in part because of the, the great visibility of police, many have accepted the fact or even embraced the fact that they are studied a lot. So uh, Jennifer talks about the importance of getting into the field. I simply want to emphasize, since we're an academic institution here, it's true that it's very hard to study these matters within the academic institution, but the academic institution is a great platform from which can, one can study these things. And a lot of it involves getting very, very close to the ground. Uh, so, for example, studying, you know, in the stop and frisk uh, context that Gary was uh, talking about, uh, this is all under this vague doctrine, the Terry Stop Doctrine, which permits the police to detain you on this strange, uh, elusive phenomenon called reasonable suspicion well before they arrest you. Uh, studying how police claim to have decided that reasonable suspicion was established and what the police then do to people through this act of detention, including for sometimes imposing a great deal of humiliating force on them. These things can be studied. The labor, it, the labor intensiveness of these studies is great, but students can actually participate in this kind of work. Uh, shameless advertisement, we encourage grad, uh, undergraduate students to come over to the Stanford Criminal Justice Center where we do these things. But I want to take one quick uh, turn in a slightly different direction. Police, because of their visibility, are being studied a lot. They are not the only, and some might argue, they're not the most important actors in the system. The ones that are least studied and maybe most powerful are prosecutors. And I'm not talking about the famous visible federal prosecutors. I'm talking about the ground level county prosecutors who have vast power in the United States, power which, if anything, has been hugely enhanced by mandatory and very fixed sentencing laws, which pretty much leave the power of sentencing in the hands of prosecutorial discretion. Prosecutors are famously or infamously immune to being studied. They don't think that what they do can be studied. They think it's kind of like a Vatic inspirational power that cannot be explained <laughs> to mere mortals. Uh, but 
a lot of the research we and others have done have been try, uh, has involved trying to get into prosecutors' offices to study how those decisions are made and what kind of legislative changes might follow. Meanwhile, you have some thoughts, Gary, I know, on diversity among law enforcement. Well, uh, so most famously, the, the United States Border Patrol is an overwhelmingly Latino organization. And so there's an example that diversity does not by itself produce a change in policy. Uh, wh whether, whether you're a police officer, a border patrol officer, sheriff's deputy, uh, you're actually part of a much broader system, and it's a system that has given you a set of marching orders. That notwithstanding, I think all of us would agree that a more diverse police force is better than an all-white police force uh, in terms of policing uh, communities of color, uh, but I, we should never see that as a panacea because of what you described as the thin blue line, the, the internal uh, culture of the organization and the idea of, of, of in-group solidarity. Brian, briefly tell us about some of the ways police departments are evaluating how they do their business. They're talking about having more restrictive rules about pursuits, mm -hmm. for example, and when they, when, if, if a suspect flees for a minor infraction, mm -hmm. that they don't have to follow them. They're, they're getting more guidance on calling for backup. Mm -hmm. They're having more sort of um, a better definition of what is excessive force. I mean, these things are being talked about on a hopeful note yeah. in police departments all across, well, maybe not all across the country, but in a lot of major metropolitan areas. I, I think that's right. I mean, we now know what makes for better policing. And, and one of the challenges is what you just said, Katie, is that there are 18,000 police departments in the United States. There is no centralized oversight. So it's highly uh, you know, decentralized. And so getting to best practices is really hard. But we know what they are. I mean, the first thing is just the identity of the officer uh, the, the, themselves, is that you know, we have too many police officers in this country that think of themselves as warriors. And what we want to do is to change that identity. We don't need warriors on the streets of America with guns and in police uniforms. We need guardians. And if you tell somebody you're not a warrior, you're a guardian, they begin to think differently about their role. We're, we're talking to people about training. So, most of the police departments, 95% of their training is them going someplace and shooting something or fighting each other, right? It's all about shooting and fighting. And if that's what you've been trained to do when you're out on the street and you're stressed, what are you thinking you're going to do? You're going to shoot or you're going to be abusive and, and aggressive with someone. And so we have to change that. And there are some great recommendations. I was fortunate to be part of the president's task force on policing. And what we recommend is this identity shift, right, involving the community. We need... Uh, people from the community talking to the police and police talking to the community. Uh, you know, uh, independent autonomy. You need to have independent investigations when there's an accusation of some excessive force. You need independent prosecutors who can prosecute these cases. De-escalation is the thing you were mentioning where, you know, sometimes you don't have to chase somebody and create this high security problem just because uh, they uh, jaywalk just because they have some traffic problem. It's not the ultimate. You know, Eric Garner, it would be better if they just let him sell those cigarettes on the streets of New York City. Really, who is going to be worse off, right? And so this idea that it's not a test of your authority each time you encounter someone is really important. Uh, and then there are other things that, that are really important in how we police better. And I think we've got a blueprint. I want to just urge people here so we put out a 40-page report, uh, the task force recommendations that deal with things like training and uh, civ civilian review. 
Every person in here is authorized to go to your local police chief or your sheriff and say, I want to sit down and talk with you about the task force recommendations. I want to know which of these recommendations you're following, which things are part of your policy, which things are going to be part of your policy, and begin a dialogue with your local police leadership around these topics, around topics like training, uh, topics like um, we have a wonderful program that's been incredibly effective where police departments are hiring what we call high emotional IQ officers who don't wear uniforms, who don't have guns, who go into high crime neighborhoods, projects and low income sections, and they just are there to help. They announce themselves, they say, I'm Brian, I'm a police officer, I don't have a gun, I don't wear a uniform, I'm here to help you in any way I can. Can I get your groceries? Can I walk you to the store? What can I do to help? Can I watch you? That culture shift does something really remarkable. And we have to allow those officers to kind of go up the ranks, just like we allow the people who kind of carry guns and chase people down. And that kind of modeling has been unbelievably impactful in poor and minority communities. If anything that L.A. did to change, you know, 1992, the Rodney King riots, L.A. was the worst police department in America. Three years ago, when somebody was on the rampage trying to hunt these police officers down, you had poor people and people of color offering protection and shelter to some officers because they had that kind of respect for them. That's what we have to see facilitated in departments. I profile Chris Magnus, who's the police chief in Richmond, California, and he's really trying to bring whole new meaning to the concept of community policing. And he told me that when you take care of people's small problems in the communities, they want some trash removed, they want a car, an abandoned car removed off their street, there's this element of trust that really develops. And, and I think crime in Richmond, California has gone down so much since Chris Magnus and since these different police techniques have been utilized by that department. You know, talk about getting proximate. I don't think we can be here at Stanford without talking about what's, being, what's been going on on college campuses, not only here, all across the country. And of course, after seeing the protests in Ferguson following the shooting death of, of Michael Brown, students at the University of Missouri, in a way, took a page from the Black Lives Matter movement and started to protest racial incidents at school at their school. And before we talk about the dynamics of what's going on and, and how we can all talk about it and face our past and really have a, a constructive dialogue, why do you think so many of these racial incidents are surfacing at schools, at colleges across the country, whether you're talking about a noose at Duke or whether you're talking about putting cotton balls outside the Black Culture Center at the University of Missouri or you know, blatant racism, like singing a racist chant by the Oklahoma fraternity uh, on that bus. Is it what's going on in the culture that we're seeing these incidents more or are we just hearing about them more? I'm just going to throw that out to everyone. Can, can I just start? I, I actually think these incidents have been going on for decades. And part of the pain and anguish, the reason why people want to say something like Black Lives Matter is that people have been talking about them forever and nobody's paid any attention. These problems of racist behavior and incredibly insensitive and offensive behavior have been going on for decades. And now there's this interesting opportunity to talk about it in ways that people will maybe, for a moment at least, focus. But I don't think it's an increase as much as it is uh, finally getting some exposure. And of course, the more racial justice work you do, the more you're going to trigger some resistance to that. 
And so if people start act, getting activist and, and advocating for particular things, you're going to see some pushback. And that's going to manifest itself in these ways. And we have to mention social media, I think, Brian, yeah, in absolutely. terms of making people aware of what's happening at colleges and universities all across the country. It used to happen sort of in an insulated way. That's right. And now it happens in a way that, that spurs outrage and, and conversation on social media. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, being able to, you know, young people, people in, on campuses can control uh, the messaging. They can control the storytelling in ways that's unprecedented in American history. And frankly, if the same executives at a handful of networks in a handful of communities were controlling the narrative, we wouldn't know about Michael Brown. We would not know about Eric Garner. We would not know about that police shooting. But because that's changed, we're now being forced to have conversations that we wouldn't have otherwise. And I, I think that's one of the, been the powerful upside uh, to what technology has wrought. All of you obviously have taught at different schools. Uh, you know, in addition to Stanford, you've had a lot of contact with minority students. What are the most commonly expressed uh, universal grievances? that you're hearing from these students in these situations. Gary, why don't you take that one? Well, I, I think the things that you're most likely to hear are curriculum, faculty, and campus climate. Um, and the first two are, are, are closely linked, and then I'll talk a bit about the third. In terms of curriculum, uh, students of color, students from disadvantaged backgrounds, uh, and students from otherwise marginalized groups don't see themselves reflected in the curriculum. Part of that is a very, um, um, inertia-driven uh, curriculum in a lot of uh, disciplines in the United States, and it's true at Stanford, it's true across the country, um, that's, not, that's not unique to any particular environment. The curriculum is going to have a tough time changing if the faculty don't change. Um, and you've seen demands for increased diversification of the faculty nationwide. Uh, there are a lot of folks here who are very proud of the efforts that Stanford's engaged in in investing in faculty diversity. But I got to tell you, Stanford's falling further behind. Uh, in the last year that there's full data available on the provost website, 6.1% of Stanford's faculty represent underrepresented minorities. That was in 2014. In 2004, the number was also 6.1%. And in 1994, it was 4.6%. So we've improved our underrepresented minority faculty presence by 1.5% in 20 years. At the same time, the number of underrepresented minorities in the society has gone from about 17% of the population to about 33. So by holding steady, we're actually falling further behind. Now that's not an indictment of Stanford per se, because those numbers are actually replicated at lots of institutions across the United States. So we're rapidly on our way to a, a moment where a mostly white faculty is going to be teaching a mostly non-white student body. The majority of children seven and under in the United States are children of color. So in 12 years, that's who's entering uh, the university system. So we really need to think about the faculty diversity. And we then the should final mention, by the way, by 2060, the minority population will be 56, minorities will be 56% of the total population. That's right. Whites would remain a plurality, but would no longer be a majority. And so then the last thing you want to talk about is campus climate. And in most instances, um, when you see some of the protests that have taken on in college campuses, it is the failure of administrative leadership um, to respond to an incident of hate or to respond to an incident uh, where uh, the concerns of minority students have really uh, 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 come up. And I think that campus climate 
uh, involves not just the behavior of administrators and faculty in terms of responding to concerns, but also a sensitivity that the white upper middle class norm that has characterized universities really doesn't necessarily apply to all of, all of the students who are, are now enrolled. Let me give you one example and then I'll shut up. Um, <laughs> we, talk a lot, we talk a lot about internships. Internships are, are a big recommendation to how to move into various professions or to maybe get into graduate school or whatever. For people who come from low income backgrounds, do you know what an internship is? It's an unpaid job. Not everybody here can afford an unpaid job. Some people need to get paid jobs in order to be able to pay the next semester's tuition. So that's just a simple example of how the university environment as it has existed for 50 or 60 years doesn't necessarily suit people from disadvantaged backgrounds or underrepresented groups who are changing the student body in meaningful ways. Which reminds me of the term white privilege. And Brian, I wondered if you would talk a little bit about the role that term has in term, when it comes to having a meaningful dialogue. It makes some people bristle and feel uncomfortable and defensive. Um, but, but why is it Im important for people to keep in mind when they're having these kinds of conversations? I think Gary just gave a great example, yeah. actually. Well, I, I do think that we have to begin thinking honestly about the ways in which, if you're not burdened with a presumption of dangerousness and guilt, how that changes your life experience. If when you go to the store, nobody's following you around, if when you see a police officer, you're not more anxious because you don't feel at risk, when you go into a classroom, you always see people. You know, I never met a lawyer, period, until I got to law school. Uh, and I certainly never met a lawyer of color, right? And this idea that you have to, you wanted to be a lawyer, you had to believe something you'd never seen. That's actually hard uh, when you're trying to fight against all these things. And there are multiple ways in which uh, this burden of bias and discrimination weighs you down. It weighs you down. And for people who haven't been weighed down like that, they're making judgments about other people without appreciating what it feels like. My, gran my grandmother was the daughter of people who were enslaved. She was brilliant, but she was uneducated. My parents couldn't go to high school, right? Uh, we grew up in a space where we couldn't learn to do a lot of things because we didn't have access to those things. The pool wasn't open to black kids. I didn't know how to swim. It's not a judgment about my laziness or my... So there are all of these things. And so what white privilege forces you to do is to just think about the ways in which you are not disadvantaged. You are not burdened by these things. And then to kind of, kind of presume something that you haven't really experienced. So when people are expressing a whole lot of... When everybody in the room who's black is saying, it feels like A, and you're saying, no, that's not right, then you need to be questioning yourself, why are you saying that? Why are you so confident that, that you are right about that when you haven't had any of that experience? And I think that's the whole question of privilege. And for me, the reason why we have to do this narrative thing is that if I just accidentally just did something and something flew off my hand and hit Jennifer, I would want to make sure that she's okay. And if I thought that she wasn't okay, it would bother me a really long time because I just don't want to be that kind of person that doesn't care if I've done something that's hurt someone. We've done a lot of things to hurt people of color in this country. And we ought to care uh, that uh, we do something about that. And, and that privilege is the only thing that makes us feel like, oh, we don't have to. You know, in, indigenous people in this country, the whole dispute, AP, advanced placement, used the word genocide in characterizing what happened to indigenous people in this country. On one of their exams, there was a big outrage. 
and then they finally retreated from it. So you're not allowed to call the genocide of Native Americans genocide. Ten million people here, white settlers come, a few years later, half a million people are left. It was genocide. But we don't want to be burdened by having to confront the fact that maybe our foreparents were part of a genocide. So we're not going to allow you to use that word. That's a privileged perspective. You get to control. So that's the kind of thinking that I think is really key to how we move forward. It's really key. And when we come to when it comes to implicit bias, uh, Jennifer, how it gets imprinted at such an early age, other than being aware of the implicit biases you might have, what how can you keep them from taking hold in the first place, or is that virtually impossible? And I wonder if you share the story. I went to Jennifer's class during Parents Weekend uh, last year, and so <laughs> I, I love Katie her Perry. and I love all her work. <laughs> and um, but tell, maybe you could also illustrate this by telling the story of your son. Okay, uh, some some of the students here I think have heard this story before, but. Uh, this uh, story took place a number of years ago when my son was about five years old, and uh, we had been in Boston. Uh, my husband was um, invited to uh, Harvard to speak uh, or to teach a, a class during their winter term. It's a short three-week term, and so my son and I went with him for the first week, and um, we were um, on our way back um, here uh, uh, to California uh, on the plane, and... Uh, you know, he was looking around on the plane, and he looks up, and um, my son, uh, he sees this black guy, and he says, hey, that guy looks like daddy. And I look at this guy, and he does not look like daddy. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, okay. <laughs> but then, you know, parenting these days, you have to be real sensitive, and so I'm thinking, well, maybe he's seen something I'm not seeing. I'm going to give it a, a shot, and you know, I'm going to give it a chance. Um, my initial reaction was that he just thought all black people looked alike because he was the only <laughs> black guy on the plane and he had to look like daddy. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step back. And so I, I look at the guy and um, I look at his height and he was about four inches off. And then I looked at his weight and there was nothing there. I looked at his body type, nothing there. I looked at his um, facial features, nothing there. Skin color, nothing there. I looked at his hair, and he had these um, really long dreadlocks flowing down his back. And my husband's bald. <laughs> I'm like, all right, you know. <laughs> so I'm ready to have that talk, right? I was talking about having the difficult uh, dialogues. I'm ready to have the talk. And so I, I'm sort of getting set for what I'm going to say. And then before I could say anything, he looks up again, and he says, I hope he doesn't rob the plane. And I said, what? What did you say? And he said it again. He said, I hope he doesn't rob the plane. And I said, well, why would you say that? I said, you know, daddy wouldn't rob a plane. He said, I know. And I said, well, why would you say that? And he looked up at me with this really sad face and he said, I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I was thinking that. We're living with such severe racial stratification that even a five-year-old can tell us what's supposed to happen next. It saddened him and it saddened me. It saddens me every time, actually, I tell that story. Um, it's... Um, when you live uh, with the disparities, the, the extreme disparities that we're living with in this country, 
It's not just affecting uh, people who are uh, in prison. It's not just affecting their families. It's affecting all of us. It is affecting our psyches in a deep way. So. We have some questions from the audience. Um, they're not quite as good as mine. <laughs> but I feel like I have to ask them. <laughs> Sorry. Um, can I just ask one more of mine and then I'll get to these? Okay, because there's just one. There, there are actually two more, but I'm going to do one. I, I wanted to talk, because we were talking in the green room, all of us, about what happened at Princeton with taking Woodrow Wilson off the School of, of Foreign Policy. And there are other schools that are doing some, taking similar actions. At Georgetown, they're changing the name of two dorms. They were former presidents of Georgetown, but they were also slave owners. They're talking about at Yale, changing the name of Calhoun, one of the, the houses there. Um, are these steps, in your view, schools should take or is this in some ways erasing a painful chapter in our nation's history that may be instructive? Um, I'm just curious because I've been wrestling with this myself. And Bob, what are your thoughts? You're looking at me like I'm crazy. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. I think it's been a very, very interesting intellectual and social and moral exercise. Now, let's take some extremes. Uh, the Confederate flag was taken down from the South Carolina State House. How that could have been controversial is hard to believe because there you were talking about an endorsement of the Confederacy. But then you move into this much more murky area of historical memory. So the first thing is actually when these things get discussed, students suddenly start studying the history of their institutions. They learn a lot of things that they hadn't otherwise learned. And I think, you know, as many have said, there maybe have to be a statute of limitations, uh, on, you, know, uh, you know, in terms of erasure. I'm not sure if you're erasing painful memories you're, because the memories may not go away. Rather, you're making a new statement about the identity of the institution. And if I can just switch to one little uh, side point in a way, the notion that, well, something was part of tradition, we can't change that, is ludicrous. Tradition isn't fixed. Tradition can change. It's not a categorical imperative. So here's my maybe odd example. The football team for the, for the uh, District of Columbia, okay? Uh, the question of changing the, the, the name. The resistance to it is, but there's such an investment in the tradition. Is it really that important? Are lives that built around it? Are they going to be that hurt if we just allow for the possibility that symbols change as, as culture changes? So I think it's been a very interesting exercise. I think it's hard to say where to draw the line in terms of erasure and all that. Uh, but I think it's useful. I think it, it's been incredibly educational for me, someone who thought, thinks of, thought of Woodrow Wilson as the guy who, you know, the League of Nations had a stroke, kind of propped him up, Edith pretty much running the country, and that's pretty much what I knew about Woodrow Wilson. And then when I, upon further examination, as this controversy arose, I mean, he tried to reintegrate the federal government. He invited members of the Klan to the White House, you know, and these are things that I think, to your point, Gary, with it being taught history a certain way, um, I had a sanitized impression of Woodrow Wilson. But the question is, where do you stop? I mean, can we go all the way back? As you, you made a funny joke. Say that joke, Gary. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you better be funny now. <laughs> you realize I have no chance now. Uh, well, I, ju I just said that, 
you know, th as we go back in history, at some point you're going to have to draw a line. Julius Caesar was a bad guy, but we probably don't want to change the name of the month of July. <laughs> See, that was good, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> See, you ruined it. I can't, I can't. I'm sorry. I didn't have a chance. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but the point I was going to make was just simply that um, the statute of limitations on atrocity at some level runs out, right? So there is world history. We could tear down monuments in, in Europe because of, uh, of an invasion that took place during the Napoleonic era or whatever. And I, I, I just wonder if we are benefited by completely erasing it. Now, there are certain things, and, and I know Brian's got some good thoughts on this, there are certain celebrations of really bad people that need to be done away with, and I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely good with that. Well, I think that's my point. I don't think, I, I don't think, I'm not worried about where we're going to stop, because I don't think like we've ever started, right? <laughs> I, I really don't. I, I, I mean, you know, and I'm going to admit I'm coming at this because I live in Montgomery, Alabama, where there are 59 markers and monuments to the Confederacy downtown and not a word about slavery, where the two largest high schools are Robert E. Lee High and Jefferson Davis High. On Monday, I won't get to celebrate Martin Luther King Day because in Alabama, it's Martin Luther King slash Robert E. Lee Day. <laughs> Jefferson Davis's birthday is a state holiday. Confederate Memorial Day is a state holiday. And the American South is littered with the iconography of the Confederacy, this false narrative of our great triumphant heroes who were in fact insurgents, terrorists who tried to destroy this nation. And in Germany, you would not ever think it's appropriate to say, oh, we should celebrate Adolf Hitler's birthday. And in fact, the Germans have banned the swastika. And you know what people in Germany who are nationalists and racists do? They wave the Confederate flag. And it's that kind of symbolism that expresses something. The Confederate flags in most state houses in the American South weren't there in the 1920s and 30s. They were erected in 1955 after the Supreme Court issued Brown versus Board of Education. They were political statements say, we resist integration. And so when people drive around with them now, what it says to me is that I'm resisting all of that racial progress stuff. And so we actually have to engage in an honest conversation about what that means. I don't think we'll ever recover. We won't heal from slavery and from terrorism and segregation until we embrace a different set of memorials, monuments, icons. I, I don't know why any university would want to have a building named after someone who did something horrific. Now, people can recover. I Listen, I represent people who te commit terrible crimes. I'm not interested in punishing people for the bad things that have happened. I want to get to something better. But you have to find a way to express some remorse, some acknowledgement of that. And that's the challenge, it seems to me. And sometimes it means changing a name. Sometimes it means putting a marker outside the building saying, well, you should know that this person did this, that Woodrow Wilson celebrated Birth of a Nation as a film, thought it was wonderful, right. and did that kind of stuff. You have to do that. And I think that's the way we move forward. Uh, and I really do think it's a, not only is it important, it's essential. We're not going to, you can't, you know, if you, if you live in the mud like we've been living in the, this country when it comes to racial justice for 400 years, you're going to have to at some point start cleaning. And, and that cleaning process is a really purposeful one. You know, we're in the early stages of a post-apartheid era here. And I think there's a lot that has to be done to recover from that. And, you know, the naming process is a really important and critical component of that. Two final questions from the audience. Do, um and they're really actually quite good. <laughs> you talk about being proximate. So the question is, do we replace those in power with those who are proximate or push them to be proximate? I think we, I'm, I don't mean to, I, I think we do both. I, I think that um, 
we have to push people who have power to get proximate. And if they don't, we have to then replace them. I really think that that dynamic is essential. Uh, you know, and there's just multiple ways to do it. You know, I live in regions where the political power, I, I don't, we don't have a lot of political power. My, I don't have political power. There are these, uh, these, these numbers that make that hard. So we have to keep pushing people to get closer. I want to bring people into jails and prisons. I want to bring them into schools. I want to bring them to these spaces. Think Donald Trump wants to get proximate? I, I, you, know, I, you know, it's sort of funny. I almost said something about this and I didn't, but now that you've asked. Uh, <laughs> when, it, when it comes about narrative, and this is, this is what I think we all have to do. This is where I do think we all have a role. But when it comes to narrative, we cannot tolerate the kind of bigotry and the kind of racism that uh, we've been hearing on some of this campaign. You know, I, I, this comment about, oh, I'm going to block all the Muslims, this is the thing I think when I hear something like that. On the day that someone in power tries to do that, all of us who are faithful Christians and faithful Jews and faithful Buddhists need to stand up and say, I am Muslim. All of us need to embrace the Mexican people. When you hear somebody saying, oh, Mexicans are this and that and this and that, we have to say, you know, I'm Mexican. Don't talk that way. You know, we have to challenge that rhetoric because I think it is much more destructive than we realize. You can't spend time in a room with no oxygen and not suffer some real consequences. And that's what that kind of talk represents. It is unhealthy. And so I do think that, um, yes, there are ways in which we have to insist on proximity when people engage in the things that are designed to keep us as far away from each other as possible. And finally, can the panel, I guess all of you, give some more examples of how we in this country can talk uh, more about slavery and racial difference? What does this conversation specifically and explicitly look like? I love the symbol symbolic markers uh, about lynching sites, around lyn lynching sites, for example. So I guess in closing, you know, how can we reconcile our past? How can we have an important dialogue with honesty and also forgiveness mm -hmm. for people who, you know, do acknowledge their implicit biases or have baggage that, that they want to acknowledge but also have to be forgiven for. Anybody? <laughs> Gary. What? <laughs> I'm with Brian. I am Mexican. <laughs> oh, wait, I actually... I actually uh, uh, wow, I mean, I, thank you for that. So, I, I mean, the, the, the folks who have written on this, um, both as polemics and, and from a, a philosophical or academic point of view, talk about developing um, racial projects to undo... Um, forms of white privilege and white supremacy. Um, the, you asked the white privilege question earlier. I think one of the greatest obstacles to achieving some form of racial justice in this society uh, is the fear that particularly uh, middle class and working class whites have when you tell them they're privileged because no one wants to believe that they're the beneficiary of, almost no one wants to believe that they're the beneficiary of racism or that racism helped them get, get ahead. And they don't want to acknowledge that their parents or their grandparents or their great grandparents participated in something like this. But when you talk to, to a white audience, you just ask them some simple questions. Okay, did your grandparents own a home? 
raise your hand. And for the people who, who, whose hands raised, remember that that home appreciated and that home had value because there was a form of enforced racial segregation that, that denied people of color the opportunity to even buy in that neighborhood, that reserved the more desirable locations for whites. Um, if you have someone, how many of you have a, a parent or a grandparent who's a union member? You get some hands up. Well, it turns out that even after the passage of the 64 Civil Rights Act, union policies that, that gave uh, hands up to legacies, to children of people who already carried a union card, meant that white privilege was preserved even after the formal abolition uh, of discriminatory behavior because all the people who had legacy uh, were in fact white. When we look at the affirmative action cases, we didn't talk about that tonight, and, and it's another whole can of worms. If you look at the affirmative action cases in Michigan, which were adjudicated uh, several years ago, one of the interesting things there was that legacies at the University of, uh, uh, of Michigan got a hand up in admissions, and so did people from the Upper Peninsula, which is essentially an all-white environment. So it turns out that when, when legacies and all white areas are given hands up in admission, everyone thinks that that's okay, but giving African Americans or Latinos an opportunity to go to the University of Michigan, that's somehow or another some form of reverse discrimination. So calling out white privilege, not in an angry way, but just sort of in explaining how an average middle class white person is still the beneficiary of decades of systematic bias and exclusion, that I think is the first step um, towards getting people to understand that the world that they live in is not just, and that their life is not glorious because of their own wondrous merit, however meritous they might be, <laughs> but, but because of a system of bias that's been in place for 140 years or so. We, we have, um, I hope, somewhere nearby or outside uh, these calendars that we brought here for people to take, and they're free. And if you don't get one, just go to our website. It's eji.org, and it's a small, simple thing, but it's actually intended to be a tool to help begin some of these conversations, because I totally agree with what Gary's saying. It starts with truth-telling. If we just tell the truth about the ways in which racial inequality manifests itself, People of goodwill will want to reconcile themselves to that truth. They'll want to do some things that are corrected. But if we don't tell the truth, if we hide from it, if we allow the denial that exists in so many ways to persist, we won't actually get there. And so for me, it begins with truth. I mean, we can't force truth and reconciliation, but we can force the truth. And the truth is what will motivate people to want to reconcile themselves. So these calendars are not happy, friendly calendars, right? They've got some really challenging images. They're designed to, you know, we don't have like President Obama's birthday in there or anything like that. <laughs> we have dates of lynchings and violence. We talk about when Japanese Americans were forced into concentration camps in this part of the country. We talk about all of the anti, uh, the, 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 the pro, you know, uh, 1070 laws in, in Arizona. We talk about the ways in which we've constructed this narrative of racial difference. And we think just putting that out there and talking about it creates this momentum. And then I think you have different conversations. So when I think about voting rights, I'm going to get in trouble now for real. I don't understand how we denied black people in the South voting rights for 150 years. And then we passed the Civil Rights Act, which all the southern states were against. Uh, and then we resisted enforcing it in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And then as soon as we could, we actually took a case to the U.S. Supreme Court and asked them to begin to undermine it. And I think in some ways we weren't actually 
asking the right policy questions. I think in the 19th, after the Civil Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act should have mandated that in states where voting rights were denied to black people, every black person when they turn the age of 18 is automatically registered to vote. I don't, I don't think black people should have to register to vote in this country. I actually think maybe in those states, the states ought to send somebody to their homes and, let, and get their vote. You shouldn't have to go to the polls. If we've denied you the vote for 150 years, you might even be able to get to vote twice. I don't know. I <laughs> But it wouldn't have been crazy in the 1970s to have an educational recovery conversation after denying black people access to schools, instead of just talking about letting a handful of people into a street. Why wouldn't we just say, having denied education for 150 years, we're going to let people of color, African Americans who can show this history of exclusion, come to our state universities for half the tuition as everybody else? Why not have a conversation about it? We might not adopt those policies, but for me, we ought to want to do something reparational if we have the truth pushing us. I want to create to a place where I feel better about this. You know, in gender issues, we've done a little bit better. We aren't, aren't there yet, but we've learned not to say certain things. We've learned to do certain things, and I think that's part of what we have to do in the race context, and the opportunities are everywhere. So few people have done so little that, there's, there's, that you can pick any place and start. And, uh, and you'll make a lot of progress. But I, I, the, the, the last thing I'll say about this, I will tell you, on the other side of it, there is something that feels much better than what we felt like. You know, I'm working with people, you know, white people and poor people in communities that have carried a lot of these burdens with them. And you go into a place and you actually start talking about some of this stuff and people get to lay some of these burdens down. It's amazing what that does to your whole well-being. And that's what I want for this whole nation. And I think we can get there, but we've got to commit ourselves to telling the truth. And we haven't really done much of that. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. But he said, that's my bruise. I got my bruise and kind of violence. It's a different kind of shooting. It's a different kind of crisis. And so all of that has to be wrapped together. So I do think we're in a moment. But it's a moment that has to be sustained by a deeper engagement with these issues. But I'm hopeful that we can achieve that. Um, right over here. Hi, thank you so much. Um, my name is Leah Singer, and I'm a member of the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum Committee. Um, my question for you is that today I heard about a success you had on a case. Um, so congratulations. Thank you. And I was wondering if you could speak to that accomplishment a little bit. Sure. Uh, yes, I've been really edgy all day, you know, uh, and I, I chose not to talk about it tonight because I thought I might just dissolve into weeping or something like that, which wouldn't be good. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. I, no it's okay. I've, I've, you know, I'm feeling better. No, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful development. But yes, I have been representing somebody who's been on death row for 30 years who is innocent. And we were able to uncover evidence of his innocence that was, in my judgment, absolutely irrefutable. It was a, a firearm case where they, they said that this man committed these murders in Birmingham because a gun found in his home had been matched to bullets from these three crimes. And he was so poor at the time of his trial that he couldn't get the kind of expert he needed to prove that that wasn't true. He actually had to hire, his lawyer hired a civil engineer who was literally blind in one eye and could not use a dual lens uh, microscope to actually look at the evidence. And the guy was laughed out of the courtroom and he was convicted and sentenced to death. Uh, and this man has spent the last 30 years uh, in solitary confinement on Alabama's death row. He's been down the hall when 51 people have been executed. 
the first 30 of whom were executed in the electric chair, and he would talk about smelling the flesh burning in his cell. Uh, and he's been threatened with death every day by the state for something he did not do. And when we presented the evidence of his innocence, we got the three best gun experts in America uh, to test this weapon, and they all quickly, unanimously said, no way is this weapon involved in this crime. And I thought then we would see some justice, but they absolutely would not do anything. They never said, we don't believe you. They never said, we discredit this. We never said, we don't believe these experts. They just said, eh, we're not going to do anything. And another 15 years went by. And we got uh, turned around by every court. Every court said no. Every court said no. And I finally got the United States Supreme Court last February uh, to overturn the case and push it back to a new trial. And then I thought, well, finally, we're going to get him out. And the state said no. We're going to try to convict him again. And it's been one thing after the other. They said they lost the evidence, and then they found the evidence. And finally, I got the court to order them to test the evidence. And late last night, I got a notice, a call, telling me that the evidence results came back, confirming what we've been saying all along. And early this morning, the state called and finally conceded that they had the wrong person. And tomorrow morning, this man is going to be released from prison after 30 years. Yeah. Thank you. It, it, it's, it's very gratifying. And, you know, I, I just, we, my client and I have been having these really emotional conversations uh, all day. Uh, and it's so exciting. We've been trying so hard to get to this place. And it is a triumph, but it is also a tragedy. Because they took something from him that they can't give back. And, you know, last night the conversation was, oh, I'm so happy, I'm so happy, I'm so, this is what I've been waiting for, this is what I'm looking for. And he has been so anxious about whether he would ever get out of prison and avoid execution. That's what we've always talked about. And then this morning when we were talking on the phone, what he was anxious about was the world in front of him. He said, I don't know anything about the Internet. I don't know anything about the ATM. I don't know anything about these smartphones. And now I'm anxious about what's on the other side. And he said to me, will I ever be able to live a life without this kind of anxiety? And I asked him, I said, well, what do you want? And we were talking. He says, well, what do you want? He says, you know, it's so embarrassing. And he started crying because he felt so bad. He says, all I want is freedom. And when I start trying to think of the other things I want, I can't think of a single thing that I want as much as freedom that's worth mentioning. And I feel like I'm somehow incomplete because I can't tell you what else I want. And all of that disruption that is created by what we've done, that's the tragedy part. But we are going to embrace the triumph part uh, with a lot of love and a lot of excitement. Uh, it's a microcosm of all that's wrong with our case. It was about race. It was about poverty. It was about indifference. It was about uh, our unwillingness to own up to our mistakes. Uh, but I'm super, super happy. I'm going to remember this trip to the Kennedy School to Harvard, uh, not only because you've made it special by being here, but I'm going to remember it because it was the day when we finally won this long-term battle uh, to resurrect a little justice for someone. Yeah. Right up here. Yes, sir. Hello. My name is Ray Fong. I'm a Harvard alumni. I am certainly moved by your eloquent discussion of for the call for justice for criminals or in this particular example for the call for justice for people falsely accused of crime. My question to you is how should we balance that call for justice for criminals against the call for justice for victims of crime? Yeah. Well, I don't think of the world in that kind of, um, kind of dual way. I mean, if, if somebody asks me, where can I find the most victims of crime and violence? Where can I find the largest 
largest aggregation of people who have been abused or neglected or raped or robbed or had family members murdered? If I was going to answer that question, I'd say it would be in jails and prisons. Because the families and the communities where my clients come from are families and communities that are experiencing victimization at rates three times greater than the rest of society. And so for me, the question isn't how do we deal with this group and that group, it's how do we deal with people who are being threatened and menaced, who are being victimized in different ways. I absolutely want to create less victimization. There's nothing that bothers I was telling the group uh, upstairs that I hate violence. I hate all these things. I want us to do the things that actually end violence. But what we've been doing is actually saying, no, after you've been violated, after you've been raped, after you've been murdered, we're going to beat up on the person that's committed that crime. And then we ask ourselves, well, how do we balance that? Well, we balance it by saying, let's create a world where there's less violence. But that means intervening on the lives of people who are at risk. You know, I was talking uh, last night, we've got children in this country uh, who are born into violent families. They live in violent neighborhoods. They go to violent schools. They're chased by violent gangs. And there's a point in their life where they're going to react violently to the stress of all of this. Now, are they a victim or are they a criminal? They are both. And I want to do something that actually addresses both parts of this because we won't get to balance. We won't get to justice until we do that. My racial justice work is about actually victims' rights. That's what that work is about. Uh, my work on behalf of children is about victims' rights. Uh, my work on behalf of people wrongly convicted is about victims' rights. But it's also about not reducing people to their worst act. I, as much as I'm antagonized by these prosecutors who have done really incompetent and unethical things, I want them to do better. I don't want to just condemn them. I want them to do better. That's what I want. And I want that for everybody. I, as was indicated, my grandfather was murdered when I was 16. Devastating. Devastating. But the question we were asking is why? We weren't asking who and what can we do to them. The question we were asking is why? And I want to answer that question in a way that means that maybe somebody doesn't lose their grandfather next year or the year after that. And there are a lot of things that we need to be talking about if we're going to do something about victims, including guns, including the way we deal with drug and alcohol addiction, including the way we manage and provide services to the most at risk. But we somehow isolate that from this conversation. We only talk about punishment over here and victims' rights over there. And I'm worried about that because I think it's a construct that ultimately doesn't succeed. Uh, so yes, I'm deeply, deeply committed. I spent a lot of time with the family members of uh, uh, the people who are violated, e even by some of my clients. And nothing creates more hope for me when I see some restoration, some responsiveness to that victimization that makes people feel a little, little less oppressed and burdened by what's happened to them. Thank you. Right up here. Thanks. Uh, my name is Jamarcus. Uh, so I'm from Arkansas where a lot of I would say archaic ideologies associated with mass incarceration are like very deeply uh, ingrained within my state. And so I'm guessing I'm wondering what advice would you give in order to establish more hope and compassion on the mm -hmm. statewide level mm -hmm. when individuals don't really have that experience that the guard was able to gain mm -hmm. from an individual perspective? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I do think that we have to uh, get people to think about these issues in a different way. Uh, we're making some, some progress in some of these states. I, you, know, I'll, you have to take all the tools, including things like cost, right? You know, in the South, we have uh, some struggling economies, and we have spent uh, millions of dollars. We spent $6 billion on jails and prisons in 1980, and we spent $80 billion last year. And we've actually bankrupted our schools and our, school and our health and human services and our public services because we've invested in jails and prisons. And sometimes right. you get their attention by saying, you can't afford all of this over-incarceration. 
I've got a client who's serving life without parole for writing a bad check for $100. And I ask every politician, who can defend this? And they can't. It's a habitual felony offender in one of these three strikes cases. So sometimes we get their attention that way. The other way we do it is by kind of challenging them to create a new narrative. This is, I was telling the group earlier, this is my fantasy. I, you know, I am persuaded that there ought to be, there's going to be a southern governor, southern white governor at some point, I hope, who I can go and see and say, you know what, I want you to end the death penalty in your state, maybe in Arkansas. And I want you to end the death penalty not because you're morally opposed to it, not because you think it's unreliable, not because you think it's unfair, not because of cost. I want to say to that governor, I, think you should, I want you to say you're going to end the death penalty because our history of racial inequality and lynching and violence and slavery means that we should not engage in killing other people. Right. And we should, we're going to do it just to kind of honor and reflect that thing. The death penalty for me is not about whether people deserve to die for the crimes they've committed. The death penalty for me is do we deserve to kill? And when you have a system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent, when you have a system corrupted by these presumptions of dangerousness and guilt and race and politics and all of that, you don't deserve to kill. And I want that governor to say, you know what, I'm not going to have the death penalty in my state because of our history of racial inequality. Right. And I'm going to say, watch what happens. Every state in the country is going to know your name. Countries all over the world are going to be talking about what you do because what you will be doing is leading us on a new narrative. And I think that's the kind of conversation we need to start having with some of these folks. Wouldn't cost you anything. Uh, it wouldn't kind of be a big deal, really, in the sense of all the things that are happening. But it would be remarkable. Uh, and that's what I want to facilitate in some of the conversations we have in the South. Yeah. Right over here. Hi, Brian. Thank you so, so, so much from the bottom of my heart for being here. Uh, my name's Caroline. I'm from South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I uh, am an MBA at MIT and an uh, MPA student here at the Kennedy School. Um, I'm graduating in May and going back to South Carolina. Wonderful. Because I want to be proximate. Yeah. Um, in my journey, otherwise known as a job search, <laughs> I am running up against something you mentioned, which is that we Southerners are very polite, but we are very uncomfortable with uncomfortable topics. Mm -hmm. and. I'm just wondering if you could speak a bit about the early days and where the wedge is mm -hmm. that where you can begin those conversations yeah. because people don't want to talk about yeah. inequality, especially among racial lines. Yeah, yeah. So. No, I think it's a great question. I think you do have to be tactical and strategic. We've got some tools that we're using mm -hmm. uh, to change the narrative. If you go to our website, you're welcome to, to, to kind of uh, ask for any of these things. But we've put together a calendar. It's one of these little subtle things that we do. And it's a calendar that just documents the history of racial inequality. It's not a very cheerful calendar. It's got some difficult, we don't have Barack Obama's birthday in it. We don't have all of these celebratory things. It's about these moments in history when there are difficult things that happen. But I've gotten the most inspiring calls from people who said, guess what? I put my calendar up in my workplace and nobody has ever dealt with race, but people are coming by and asking me uh, to talk about this calendar, asking questions, they're making comments. And I think we've got to do things like that. Uh, we're doing a project where we're trying to put markers at the places where this history needs to be elevated. So we've now put four slave markers in downtown Montgomery. Mm -hmm. uh, we love talking about mid-19th century history in the South, mm -hmm. right? But we don't like talking about slavery. So we're trying to mark it. We did this report on lynching. My goal is to put markers and monuments at every lynching site in America. Mm -hmm. I don't think you should be able to live in this country mm -hmm. and go past the spaces where this horrific acts of violence and terrorism have taken place. There was no debate. We were going to have a memorial at the 9-11 site, mm -hmm. and we should. But what about the other places where terrorism have gone unchallenged? And there's something about that that I think can 
push us to begin to deal with this. The other thing we have to do is express our concern for all of those who have been burdened by this. You know, I'm not trying to get to a different place just because I want to help African Americans. Mm -hmm. I want to help African Americans, absolutely. But I want to help everybody. There's a generation of people who are white in this country who were taught by their parents that they're better than other people because of their skin color. That's a kind of child abuse. And if we haven't helped them recover from that through our silence. Mm -hmm. And that's why we got to find our voice. I want to get to a place where we are free from the presumption of dangerousness and guilt, mm -hmm. where we don't get all rattled when somebody says something about race, where we don't get conflicted because some person of color is in a space that we're not used to, but also where we don't have to worry all the time about this infection that we carry around with mm -hmm. us. And that's got to be part of what we offer to people, is a new kind of freedom, a new kind of opportunity. We've been mimicking the habits of people, the behaviors of people who are not bigoted, but we actually haven't learned to be not bigoted. Mm -hmm. And I want us to stop the mimicry and actually learn to make steps forward. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Right over here. Thank you very much for coming. Yes. Um, I had a question about mass incarceration. Identify yourself. Huh? Identify yourself. Oh, sorry. My name is Poulad. Yeah. Um, I had a question about mass incarceration. Do you think there are reasons other than the drug war, uh, racism, or a narrative of fear for this huge growth in the prison population? Um, maybe reasons that are more ambiguous or even legitimate, uh, or at least complex? And if so, how should that be factored into how we approach it as a problem? Yeah. You know, I actually think um, not really. I mean, the prison population in this country was very stable throughout the 20th century. I mean, we always hovered at the same level. And it really was a conscious decision in the 1970s, first by President Nixon, uh, to regain political control. When we had all of these college students you know, protesting on college campuses, uh, the anti-war protests had disrupted the narrative. There were drugs in college life at levels that people hadn't seen before. And I think control was a political response to that. And criminal justice system was the uh, m medium that that control was going to be influenced. But I think it was quite political. You know, the violent crime rate today is about where it was in the 1960s in most communities. Uh, so we didn't need 2.3 million people in jails and prisons uh, to achieve the same kind of crime rate. Uh, so I do think it has been this misguided war on drugs. That's about a million people of the 2.3 that are in there. Uh, uh, these kind of misguided three strikes mandatory sentencing contributes about another half million. Uh, and then I think we've got this excessive punishment. Um, I do think uh, economics has increasingly become a contributor to mass incarceration. And that's not about race and about the narrative per se. We now have private industries that have an economic model pushing them to maintain a high level of incarceration. So if I say let's not put any more people in prison uh, for simple possession of marijuana, uh, and people say, yeah, that's a great idea. These private companies are going to send lobbyists to the legislature to make sure that bill doesn't get passed. Why? Not because they think that's a bad idea, but because they need to keep 2.3 million people in jails and prisons. They have an economic incentive to maintain high rates of incarceration. And we've never had to deal with a moneyed lobbying group that's about sustaining mass incarceration. And in some states, that's an enormous barrier uh, to reform. We're going to have to reorganize ourselves to deal with that kind of new threat, which I do think is part of it. I do think that, uh, that the narrative isn't just politicians. It's reinforced by the media. I mean, I'm astonished by how that's worked. I mean, you look at journalism today, and because of the competition of the Internet, people become more desperate. And the model that seems to succeed is to keep the viewers afraid 
or keep them angry. That's what will keep them tuned in. Even the weather channel. I go to places, somebody now, I turn on the weather channel and see what's got, what, what I'm supposed to be afraid of in Iowa. What am I supposed to be afraid of in California? Because there's going to be something, you know, dust bowls or dark clouds or gigantic raindrops or whatever. And they're talking in this way that is intended to make you stay tuned. Because if you don't stay tuned, something bad may come and get you. And it's just astonishing to me the way that narrative has in, and, and really kind of infected the way we talk about a whole range of things. So I do think that's the biggest part of it. And what I want to do is to say, look, fear and anger are also the essential elements in oppression and abuse and genocide and all kinds of the horrible things that we see. Uh, but I think that the moneyed interest is the new challenge that we face that we haven't talked about in mass incarceration. Right up here. Hello, Brian. Hi. And thank you for your presentation. Uh, my name is Mong Neo, and I'm a doctoral student in the Gizri School of Education. Um, my question is, uh, what is your view on uh, restrictions or limitations uh, in the mandatory release, meaning the, sorry, um, early release with mandatory supervisions? Mm -hmm. So I wonder if uh, the restrictions uh, requirements and limitations, especially for nonviolent mm -hmm. juveniles. Um, yeah. Does it play any role, in your opinion, in terms of having them bringing, I mean, coming back to uh, jail or incarcerated? Yeah, I know. I, I no, I think you're right. I think absolutely that our um, one of the ways in which we tried to get tough was to take away discretion. Uh, from sentencers, and we use mandatory sentencing as a mechanism for achieving that, and I think it's been disastrous. I really do. I mean, the truth is, is that there is a narrative behind even very serious crimes. And if you don't un understand the narrative, you're not going to get to the right outcome. I told you that story about that little boy uh, who uh, shot and killed his father, and most people would say that kid should not get life without parole, Right? Because there's something behind that act that's, he is a kid who shot a man sleeping in a bed at point blank range in the head. He committed murder. But if you think that that murder is like a lot of other murders, you're going to miss something that's going to lead you to injustice. So I do think mandatory sentencing has been a very big problem. It's also not really eliminated discretion. The mandatory sentencing just means that the, uh, the discretion shifts from the judge to the prosecutor. And the prosecutor doesn't even have to articulate uh, the reasons why it's exercising his or her discretion in that way. And in some jurisdictions, I think that's actually been even worse. I know that people distrust uh, judges in some contexts, but I distrust elected politicians even more because they're making these decisions from a distance. So I would like to see us step back from that kind of mandatory sentencing. I'd like to see us re uh, kind of recover. Uh, a commitment to doing justice, which is always going to require understanding the narrative behind the crime and the behavior. You get anybody close uh, to a story, we've had a lot of success in our death penalty cases only because we're providing context uh, for this behavior. And it's not me that's saying that they shouldn't get the death penalty. It's people who are believers of the death penalty in very rural southern communities that are incredibly conservative saying, no, we don't think that's appropriate there. And that's what you lose when you take away, that, uh, take away that discretion. And certainly for kids, I think for in the context of juveniles, I mean, all children are going to change. Uh, so we can't create a punishment that's not changeable uh, and apply it fairly to children. Uh, and I think that's the problem we're having with kids. It's also the problem we're having with the mentally ill. You know, 50% of the people in jails and prisons are mentally ill. 20% are acutely mentally ill. And the fact that we can't consider that 
when we're imposing sentence, when we're dealing with what's a just outcome, I think really sets us up to be a society that is doing great disservice, great injustice to people with disabilities. Yeah. Right up here. Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Mia Knight. I'm from Ohio and I'm a freshman in high school. And as you were hitting key points about race that I thought were highly intriguing and thought-provoking, um, my question is, um, do you believe in terms of race relations that conversations about race needs to be addressed to all races and ethnicities, not just um, what is highly popular between African Americans and Caucasians, but that it needs to be addressed, you know, to the entire human race, essentially, at, in general? Can I just first say how incredibly impressive it is that you are in here asking that brilliant question? <laughs> uh, thank you for that. Um, yes, I absolutely think that. The calendar that we've developed, it's really about, and that's why I use this language, a narrative of racial difference. Because when you get comfortable demonizing one group, as we did during the time of slavery toward people of African descent, it actually opens up your brain to do that again when it's convenient. And Native people in this country were burdened by a narrative of racial difference. We called them savages. And we did things that we justified because they weren't really trustworthy. They were violent. And we love to tell the stories about their extreme violence to make us comfortable. With Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time.